0: So as Pastor Paul said, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of John. The black books and the chairs around you are the Bibles. Feel free to pull those out and turn to page 863, page 863, John chapter 2. And as I said last week, if you are in need of a Bible, please feel free to take one of these. Just let us know what sound it's from so you can replace it. John chapter 2. This is the wedding. We're reading verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, "Woman, What concern is that to you to me? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water
1: and fill them up to the brim." He said to them, now draw some out
0: and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drunk the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom group and said, him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> so when we read a story like this from Scripture, we often have questions that work like, tonight we're going to be looking at three, three questions and hopefully their answers. The first question is, why is Jesus kind of rude to his mom? <laughs> have you ever it seems a little snarky, a little snappy. Alright, that's the first question. Why is Jesus seemingly rude to his mom? Second question, why is this the first miracle? This seems more like a party trick <laughs> than really something that's like revealed this glory and have the disciples put their faith in him. It's like, really? This? This is the first miracle? Oh, okay. And then the third thing, what's all this have to do with us? Right? somehow, in this story, we believe that God does the word for us. So we're going to pay attention to that. So first, Mom and Jesus, what's going on there? Second, why is this the first miracle? Third, what does the this have to do with us? Alright, so first, we have to pay attention to what Jesus says, what Mary says, and also on to what they do. Okay? So, Mary has every confidence in Jesus. Mary has every belief that he can solve this problem. Because what she says to him and the way she responds shows that she isn't just observing the fact that they have no wine, like, huh, they have no wine. The band's really good. Right? It's not like an observation, like she's commenting on the wedding. Right? She's saying they have no wine, the way your mom might say to you, uh, your laundry's in the hallway. <laughs> right? She's not making an observation. Like, oh, your laundry's in the hallway. Oh, no, it's supposed to rain tomorrow. No. Like, she wants you to act. She's telling you this because she wants you to act. Your laundry is in the hallway. Implication, your laundry does not belong in the hallway. Right? Yeah, some of you are like, how did you know? She <laughs> I got that from my mom this week. So uh, we're talking about passage. So this is her impression thinks Jesus can handle his problem. What she has seen in his life to this point that makes her think running on line is in his real house, we don't know. But she's a good Jewish mother, very confident that her boy can solve the problems. They have no line. He says to her, woman. And we're like, whoa. Because <laughs> if y'all called your mother woman, good things would not go from that. <laughs> This is one area of the world where we do not contain Jesus Christ literally right in the moment. Okay, don't call your a woman, it won't go well for you. But if you look at the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, Woman, it's usually a simply a formal address. It's not rude, it's not kind of snarky, it's just a statement like, Woman. Okay? And we see this at the very end of the Gospel of John. He says the same thing to Mary when he is on the cross and he is entrusting her to the care of John. He looks at Mary and he says, Woman, behold your son. So what's happening here isn't necessarily a good thing. The next thing is kind of interesting. He says, What a concern is that to you and me my hour has not yet come. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that in the prologue to John, in the first chapter of John, what John wants to make really, really clear to everybody reading this gospel is that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah sent to redeem the world. And what Jesus says to his mom right here is an echo of that. What Jesus is saying to Mary right here is, I understand that they have no wine, but I don't answer to you anymore. Much in the same way, if any of y'all were to join the Marines, and you were to come home from boot camp with a really fresh, short haircut, and your mom would say to you, don't like the haircut, I think you should grow it out. And you would say, "Uh, I appreciate that mom, but I don't answer to you anymore. Or if she said, you know, the whole tin shirt with the navy pants, I just I don't think that's an aesthetic you want to go with as a marine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you a fresh white shirt because I think the navy and white much sharper. You're going to be like, Mom, no. No, I don't answer to you anymore. I answer to a different authority. That's what Jesus is saying right here in this moment. I understand, Mom. I've got it. But you and I both know that there is one to whom I answer. And it's not my earthly mom, it's my heavenly father. That's what he's saying in this moment. And her response, which is do whatever he tells you, is her way of saying, I get it, I know. I submit to you as you submit to your father. So she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. If he tells you to send all the guests home, you do it. If he tells you to go wash in the river, you do it. If he tells you to take the night off, you do it. Do whatever he tells you. We are all submitting right now to whatever he does. That's what's happening. This is the setup, the first miracle right out of the gate, and John wants to make sure that his readers know Jesus is not at the beck and call of anyone other than God the Father. That's why this happens here at the beginning that's why he's seemingly rude to his mom he's saying mom I answer to a different authority she says yes good so now why is this first miracle water into wine I mean really this does seem like a party trick it seems like if you really wanted an impressive miracle right out of the gate, how about you gather all the wedding guests together and everybody who's got an ailment or an injury, you like, boom, heal it. Very impressive. You know, Uncle Ruben's all stooped over, he's limping, Jesus lays his hands up I and mean, he starts dancing at the wedding. Very, that'd be impressive. People are like, that'd be awesome. You know, grandma can't hear anything, boom, suddenly she's singing along with a band, right? This would be, this would be good, right? Aunt Sarah can't see the bride, all of a sudden she's like, whoa. That'd be like, oh, that's, that's some miracles. That's some signs, that's some glory. <laughs> Water into wine? And not even that many people find out about it? Huh. Well, to understand what's happening in this miracle, why it's the first one, why it reveals his glory, We need to understand the symbolism of everything that's happening here. The symbolism of weddings, the symbolism of water, and the symbolism of wine. So, weddings. Weddings in that cultural dime were the big deal, the big happening event. They were week long parties where relatives would come from all over. It was like A food fest and a music fest and a family reunion all rolled into one. And if you were hosting the wedding, you wanted to be sure that your guests had an amazing experience. You wanted to be sure that they had everything that they needed for the whole week. So if you ran out of wine, that would be very embarrassing. Social faux pas, something that the bride and groom would consider to be bad luck. You did not want to do that as the host. You wanted to be sure everybody had everything for the whole week so that this would go down as the best wedding ever. I'm really glad we don't have that idolatry of weddings in our own contemporary culture, so we've really moved a long way. So weddings, big deal. But weddings also had a biblical and theological framework to them. You see, in the Old Testament, The image is given of God and the nation of Israel covenanting themselves to each other like a husband and a wife. That's the image that's given again and again in scripture. And then the prophets talk about the fact that while God was faithful, the people of Israel, the bride, was not faithful. The bride cheated on the groom. The bride was unfaithful. And this is what led the people of Israel into such sorrow, into exile, into being driven off their land. And so the prophets, both Old and New Testament, when they talk about the new heavens and the new earth, when they talk about the return of the Messiah, they talk about a wedding feast. They talk about the bride and the groom suddenly coming together and it's a big party for everybody. That's the image that John gives us in Revelation. It's the wedding feast of the lamb and the bride has made herself ready. That's the theological and biblical import of weddings. Weddings were a big deal. Culturally, biblically, theologically. So water. So we've got these six stone jars for purification. They were stone because clay jars would deteriorate. They would get off, give off, and they would make the water in the jar unclean. Some of you may have heard Professor Tatko's chapel talk on Wednesday, which was thebomb.com. If you haven't seen it yet, you should totally check that out. I put it on the Facebooks, so look that up. Um, and he talked about the difference between clean water like you could drink it and then ceremonially clean water, which came from a special source and it was used for a special purpose that what was usually in these jars and they were in stone jars so that they would be protected the water could be protected which means that only water had ever been in these jars it's not like somebody wants to use them for wine maybe there was a little residue of wine when they filled them with water it looked like wine no these had never been used for anything other than ceremonial Washing of hands most likely the purification which is why they were empty because all the guests had already washed their hands. So the symbol of the water is that it has been only used for water. There's, there's no, uh, no way that that could be swapped out for anything else. So we've got weddings we've got water and now wine. What's the symbolism of wine? Well to make wine you have to be in one place for a long time. You have to be able to plant. You have to be able to tend. You have to be able to prune. You have to be able to harvest. You have to be able to smash. You have to be able to store. You have to be able to wait. It takes a long time to make wine. And the people of Israel had had seasons in their existence as a nation where they had been in the land for a long time, enough to make good wine, enough to put their roots down deep. But they had also had seasons in their life as a nation when they had been uprooted. They knew what wilderness wanderings were like. They knew what it was like to be pushed off their land and have their enemies come in and take their harvest. They knew what it was like to go into exile and leave their land behind. So wine, to be able to have wine and drink wine, was a symbol that God had fulfilled his promise to them to hold them and keep them in the land and that they had fulfilled their promise to him to be obedient and stay in the land. So wine also had these layers of meaning to it. So when all of this is happening here in John chapter two, that's the backdrop of it and nothing gets at this more clearly than, I'll tell you just a second, just wait, Daniel, just wait. Um, then the passage from the book of Amos. Now, Amos, Amos was a little crabby. His book is really hard to read because the people of Israel, this was during one of their periods when they were hoes, to use the biblical word, quite literally. They had been cheating on God. They'd been going after things, not caring for the poor, oh. not caring for anybody else, right? It's biblical. It's biblical. And so Amos is mad at them, and rightly so. So the whole book of Amos, he is mad at them because they have cheated on the one to whom they are supposed to be a covenant relationship with. He's really, really mad until the very end of the book. The very end of the book of Amos, the last verses say this. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit." I will plant them upon their land and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Take us back to the verse 13 of that with you. The very, there you go. So imagine you're a disciple, you're at this wedding, you're hanging out, it's awkward, you're a little bit younger, maybe you don't know very many people. And so you're just watching. You're watching this whole thing happen between Jesus and his mom. You're like, what was that about? That was super interesting. And then you see this, the stewards and you watch the servants. like They go out for more water and then they come back, and more water, and then they come back. And it takes a while to fill up the jars and you're like, I don't, why? I don't know why this is happening. And then you see them take the scoop out, the ladle. And maybe, maybe just as they bring the ladle over to the steward, you see a drip fall on the floor and you're like, And then you watch, you watch him sip it, and you can see he's got like purple on his lips, and you're like, oh. And maybe you and the other disciples get you like, and one of them goes, the time is surely coming, says the Lord. <laughs> because they were all good Jewish boys, and they all knew the Old Testament by heart. And it is very likely that in this moment, This is the passage that came to them. Because in this passage, there's this compression of the wine making time. Instead of the making of wine taking forever, water becomes wine every day. The rain comes down, it feeds the plants, they grow great, right, it takes time, but water becomes wine every day. This is a compression of that whole process. The one who plows overtakes the one who reaps. The treader of grapes overtakes the ones who sow the seed. There's this compression. And that's what's happening here in this moment. Jesus has just crammed the time together and the water becomes wine. And they realize what is happening here is that the kingdom of God is shown up at this wedding right in the midst of them. And they realize who this is in their midst. This is the Messiah, this is the one, this is the Son of God himself who is gonna make the mountains drip with wine and it's happening right there in this tiny little town called Cana. And the disciples are paying attention and they get it and they say, we are all in. We're all in because this is someone who makes the ordinary extraordinary. In fact, every one of Jesus' miracles is really a fast forwarding to the new heavens and the new earth. Think about that, because when Jesus returns, the blind people will see, and the lame will dance and people who have celiac disease will be able to eat pizza and drink beer with the Lord. Can I get a witness? Yes, yes. My eschatological vision. That's what's going to happen. We're all going to be whole and restored immediately. All of the things that we labor over, all of the things that drag us down, and we think, when is this going to happen? In a minute, it's going to happen. New heavens, new earth, bodies healed, souls restored and there will be more than enough for everyone. So the disciples see this happen before them and they say, we are all in with this one because he is the son of God and he makes the ordinary extraordinary. And that's what he still does. He makes the ordinary extraordinary. I had a meeting this week, and I had many meetings this week, in one of my meetings this week, I had a conversation with someone who said, "You know how that happens, like when the Holy Spirit prompts you and you think of somebody you haven't thought of in years, and you know that you're supposed to pray for that person, and you feel like really cheesy because you email them like six years like, "Hi, uh, just thinking of you and praying for you today." And maybe you say, depending on who it is, the Holy Spirit brought you to mind, maybe you don't say that." but then they reply and they say, oh, you'll never believe what happened and I so need your prayers today and thank you so much. That's the ordinary becoming extraordinary. Or the time when you're prompted to go and sit next to the person in the dining hall who has no one to sit next to them. They're just sitting there. And maybe they're reading the chimes and pretending like they're perfectly fine. But you just know the Holy Spirit has put it on you that you have to go and sit down next to that person. And so you do it. And you have lunch. And maybe this person starts to talk and you start to talk. And you realize that they're from a different country and you're from a different country And they're homesick, and you're really homesick. And one of the things that makes you really homesick is food. And you bond over the fact that while the food here is fine, it's not like the food from home. (laughs) And then you decide you're going to have lunch together regularly and talk, and one ordinary lunch turns into an extraordinary friendship. Or maybe you feel that prompting someday, like you're walking to chapel and you're pack, getting your backpack and you see somebody and the Holy Spirit's like, you should invite that person to chapel. And you're like, I, what? No, I don't think I've ever seen that person in the chapel, in the physical building. I don't think I've ever seen the person there. But, but you're like, okay, and you go and you ask the person, the person goes, okay. And comes and sit with you in chapel and you're singing a song during chapel and the person has tears in his eyes. And now you feel like super awkward. Because <laughs> you brought them and now they're teary. But you just wait. And when chapel's over, they turn to you and say, we sang that song at my grandmother's funeral. And I'm so glad I came today because it just is what I needed and it brought so much healing. And you think, oh the ordinary becomes extraordinary. And we need to pay attention. The disciples were paying attention. The servants were paying attention. And you know Mary was paying attention. But Think of how many people who were at the party, at Jesus' first miracle, who weren't paying attention. The ordinary became the extraordinary and they missed it. And think how often you and I don't go through our lives and Jesus is like, watch this, watch this, watch Oh, you missed it. (laughs) Because what happens when the kingdom of God draws near is that we all get to participate, we all get to bear witness, we all get to see those moments where the ordinary becomes extraordinary. People all dress in black and they move in such a way that the ordinary becomes extraordinary. People pick up instruments with strings on them, just strings that I can do very little with. (laughs) But in the hands of a trained person, this ordinary thing becomes extraordinary. Next week, we will celebrate communion here, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. We'll have loaves of bread that we get at a store, and we'll have grape juice that we get at a store. Ordinary things, and when we gather together around the table, and the Holy Spirit does his work, the ordinary becomes extraordinary, and the kingdom of God draws near. That's the promise of John 2, that the ordinary becomes extraordinary, that the kingdom of God draws near. And in John 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the idea. When we pay attention, we get to see Jesus and Jesus gives us abundant life. Perfect life, no. Pain-free life, no. The life we imagined, no. An abundant life? Yes, because we worship a God who in each of our lives, in each of our days, is looking for ways to make the ordinary extraordinary. And we get to pay attention. Do whatever he tells you, Mary says. And the servants do these very ordinary things and Jesus does the rest. The ordinary becomes extraordinary. Thanks be to God. Amen. You pray with me. Thank you, Jesus, that it was in this miracle, this miracle of abundance, this miracle of surprise this miracle where the kingdom of God drew near, that you revealed your glory and that you still long to reveal your glory to us. And so we pray, Jesus, that we place you in the center of our lives, that we go through our days and we look and we listen and when you prompt us, we obey and we do the little ordinary things that you can make extraordinary. So thank you for being our Jesus. Thank you for being the Son of God. Thank you for saving ordinary people and in your death and resurrection, making them extraordinary. Be the center of our lives, we pray, amen.